The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Ministry Weekend with Zach S. Wine. I've turned to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. And the question that we're asking is, okay, uh, when we're in the midst of pressures and stresses, and we're looking for a particular kind of rest, but that kind of rest is not available to us, and we want to surrender to the kind of rest God is giving, um, what if we're the friend? What if we're Titus that comes to Paul and sits with him? We've talked about presence and time. We've talked about shared stories and being with. Uh, but to be able to sustain with a word the person who's weary, what is that like? And so Isaiah 50 verse 4 has become a a text along with some of the others we've been looking at together, a text that I return to again and again. It's in this series of uh, the suffering servant foreshadowing the Lord Jesus who's coming. And it simply says this, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for grace to behold you. That you would enable us to experience your wisdom and your kind, persistent, loving willingness to teach us how to sustain with a word those who are weary and that the weary are on your heart and that this is what you would teach. And we thank you for how all this is fulfilled and upheld and illumined in our Savior, Jesus. We ask your spirit to make much of your word for us. In your name we pray, amen. The Lord God has given me. Uh, it sounds so basic, doesn't it? But there's a God-centered beginning. God takes the initiative. The Lord God. And uh, sometimes, uh, just walking into a situation, we just need to remind ourselves of this initiative of God. To say, the Lord God. Um, everything else flows from Him. And the initiative of God uh, moving into our lives gifts us with a tongue, that is, words. It gifts us with an ability to sustain the weary and gifts us with a capacity for hearing and listening. So let's think about these things for a moment. If we're coming in as a listening caregiver, if we ourselves are going to offer rest to someone else, it assumes that we have rest to offer. And so, we begin with this purpose of God. Isn't it something that God has on His heart to sustain the weary? Isn't that remarkable? Some of you perhaps have grown up in uh, 
ways of thinking about God. He's the frowning uh, tyrant of a God. He's, he's a God that loves to give you zits, loves to give you a cold and uh, give it to you so that it lasts. And he's the God who's always against you, always trying to find a reason to discipline you. But here is the God who, whose aim in all of his holiness is to be mindful of those who are full of despair and at their limit, at their wit's end. And to relate to them in such a way that they get through. This word weary is used throughout the book of Isaiah. I'll remind you of one passage. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the commitment of God to his people that they receive from him a knowledgeable, wise initiative that enables them to be sustained by him, by his word in their weariness. Jesus, our Lord, uh, fulfills this, uh, pictures it. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. This is a great encouragement for those of us who are saying, I don't have rest. And the issue with the Lord never is that you have enough rest in that sense, that you yourself can always find all the rest. He has it. He has it to give. And so if you find yourself weary and heavy laden, even, even because you have stubbornly resisted the Genesis rhythms of work and rest, or if you've thought that you were immune and you've been bitten by a snake, even then, even if you've chosen busyness rather than the one thing that needs doing, even for you. He says, come, I will give you rest. This, this posture of is pictured in the Apostle Paul. He tells us about our talking. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. But why? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That sounds very similar, doesn't it? To know how to sustain with the word him who is weary means that we have to listen before we speak, the Paul is saying. To know who it is we're speaking to and how in, in that context we're to answer. He'll go on to say, we speak what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4, 29. So God takes this initiative to give rest for the weary. Sometimes we picture God in His holy initiative. And I'm going to ask you to consider something. You don't have to agree with me. Uh, we'll be in heaven together because of Christ. But I do ask you to consider it. I ask you to consider it. When you think about the holy character of God, how do you think of him? Uh, I thought of God as frowning, all 
always at me. And that to be the most holy would mean that we are the most intense, the most angry, the most upset, the most rigid, the most strict. And that would be holiness. And I derived such things from thoughts like this. As Isaiah, who writes this of the suffering servant, stands before the throne of God, and the cherubim, seraphim, are veiling their faces, and they're all crying out, holy, 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 and the whole place is shaking. I always assumed that what they were veiling themselves from was some terrible presence. But what if, what if what they saw was holiness? Uh, we know what holiness is. Um, Paul will tell us about the fruit of the Spirit of God, the, the thing the Spirit of God produces, peace. Patience, kindness, gentleness, love, self-control. I'm asking you to consider something about this God who sustains the weary with the word. I'm inviting you not to agree with me. I'm asking what if what Isaiah saw and those angel, angels saw, what is it that, what if the holiness that caused them to veil their faces wasn't that they saw frowning, terrible, intense strictness? What if they veiled their faces because what they saw was pristine purity, perfect gentleness, pure peace, Infinite kindness, explosive gentleness, pure, unstained love, unblemished self-control. Then wouldn't it make sense what Isaiah's response was? Because what did he say? I am unclean. I always wondered, why did he say he's unclean? Why wasn't it, ah, ah, you're right, you're right. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Why was it, ah, I am unclean. Do you remember when Peter said those words to Jesus? Go away from me. I am unclean. Do you remember what he was responding to? Was it a frowning, terrifying Jesus? No. He'd been fishing. He hadn't caught any fish. Jesus said, try your nets on the other side. He said, well, I haven't caught anything, but if you say so, okay. Throws the nets on the other side. 
fills with fish. In the presence of that glad, abundant provision, Peter's response is, I am unclean. Go away. Have you ever been agitated by someone not because they're mad at you, but because they're responding so well? You just wish they'd get mad. You're just waiting for them to get mad. But they just are responding to you with grace and integrity. And it makes you upset. Because we don't know what to do with that. If they're going to relate to this way, it will require us to change. But if they would just fight, ah, I know how to do that. What if what makes God's holiness holy isn't that he's mean? What if we can't see him and live not because he's so meanly grotesque in his strictness? What if we can't see him and live because he is light and in him there is no darkness. And that means that he is more gentle, more peaceable, more kind, more loving, more full of joy and more self-controlled than anything or anyone we've ever encountered. And we cannot handle it because we are none of those things. See what you make of that. So that those among us who are the most holy, it will not be because you frowned the best and can quote the most precise, but that you are the most patient, the most gentle, the most kind, self-controlled person. And in that we see the character of the Holy One. Why would God care about the weary? Shouldn't they just get on with it and catch up? Aren't they just holding him back? And yet, this is his initiative. As he brings his kingdom about, the weary are on his heart. How do we grow attentive to this initiative purposed to sustain the weary with a word? We learn to behold. Now the word behold, as you know, is just used throughout the scripture. We're told to behold this and behold that. Behold God, behold providence, behold things in creation, behold moments, behold persons. And you know, the word behold means stop, pause, 
Stop everything you're doing. Commit full attention to the thing you are about to see or the thing I'm about to say. Behold. We're regularly called to this work of beholding. It is what's being spoken of here. The Lord God has given me. He has initiated in my life. He has acted upon my life. I am responding to him. He is front and center. I am secondary. What does this mean if we're growing attentive to beholding God in creation and providence and redemption and every small thing and beholding him in the pains of people who sin and the pains of people who are sinned against and beholding him uh, even here, not as if he's somewhere else busy while we have our conference, but as if he's here. And he is moving into our life to give us something. You know, it changes the way we approach uh, a meeting with someone. Let's imagine you're Titus about to meet with Paul. Here's what you can know. First, God was with Paul, Titus, before you guys are meeting. God is with Paul as you are meeting. When Paul leaves Titus, God goes with Paul. That means, Titus, you are not the center of this meeting. It is the Lord God who must do something, and we behold it. We We learn that God, and we believe this because of our doctrine of providence, that God is already at work in someone's life. He is already in their life in some way, whether they acknowledge it or not. And so when they come to sit in front of you over coffee or in your office or wherever it is, you are not the first to arrive on the scene. is. Therefore, when you meet, behold. Shh. Be quiet. Listen. This means that we become listening talkers. And hearing listeners. The listening talker, it's right there. The Lord God has given me the tongue. Speech. Of those who are taught, that means we've been quiet and learned. We talk out of having first listened. Now, I teach homiletics, preaching. I'm constantly teaching people how to talk. And it's a dangerous business. You know why? Because uh, wisdom like this tells us to be quick to listen. James chapter 1. 
slow to speak, slow to anger, quick, listen, slow, speak, slow, anger. Why? James tells us. Many of us stumble on many things. Let not many of you be teachers, my brothers. Why? Because the primary thing he highlights that we all stumble in is the tongue, our use of words. Our use of words. Listen to what wisdom tells us about our use of words. A fool multiplies words, Ecclesiastes 10. There is a time to speak and a time to keep silent. The foolish are always talking. They don't listen. Even their questions are veiled comments and opinions, Proverbs 23, 9. Have you ever been in a situation where someone asked you a question, only they weren't asking you a question, they were making a comment? In your Bible study or your house group? Have you ever done that? Yeah, I just have one question. I'd like to tell you why I think you're mistaken because I... Or I'd like to ask you a question. Don't you really think or mean that we should... And it isn't a question at all. It's disingenuous. It's cloak and dagger. It's folly. The wise don't have to cloak and dagger their question. The fool assumes they know the answers before they've understood the questions. Proverbs 18, 13. Have you ever had that? Someone sits in front of you. Maybe, um, maybe you've been married for a while, and you see a young couple get engaged, and they come to you and ask you for advice, and you just assume you already know everything to tell them. Why? Because you've been there once. You know what I'm saying? Is it just me? So you just assume, as a counselor, in pastoral counseling, you've seen a certain thing so many times that by now someone mentioned something, we're on alert and we're already mobilized what to say to them, and we've cut listening short the way we, we didn't used to, but we do now, because we just assume, ah, right, this, this, and this, diagnosis, category, boom, scripture. Do you remember when you first began, when you didn't know a thing and you knew it? So we're slowed down. The foolish will not admit that they need correction, nor will they submit to it when it's offered, Proverbs 17.2. The foolish speak in ignorance. They slander others, Proverbs 10.18. They mislead others with their words, Proverbs 14.16. They give wrong assessments about things, Proverbs 10.14. They speak at the wrong times. They openly display their impatience and anger with their words. Listening talkers, you see, are those who have been given the tongue of those who've been taught. So we speak out of having listened. So when someone comes and sits in front of you, 
Ah, the arrogance I have in my heart that I think I already know what to say. Or I'm so self-aware and I think I need to fix it all that I start fumbling for words to make us all feel fixed. It is the most difficult thing about speaking on these topics because nothing I can say can fix a thing in your life. No conference can do that. It is a felt vulnerability. I want to create something, don't you? So that we go away feeling fixed. But we can't. All we can do and everything we can do is gather around his word. Listen. Meditate on it. Take it up. Look to him and become a community of the taught so that we can sustain the weary. And boy, that changes how we might hear in our circles here what a community of the taught looks like. A community of the taught, maybe you instinctively think distant academic theologian. But this picture isn't like that. It's the one able, comfortable enough to enter the weariness of another and to speak from God out of having listened a word, not a lot of words, that can sustain. Not fix, not take it away, not usher in the new kingdom and bring heaven, but sustain. What a privilege. So what this means for us is we're following our Savior who did not speak on his own authority, he said. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me, John chapter 12. The Lord Jesus is speaking as one who's been taught. And we seek to follow that. Now, his being quiet with us, has the Lord Jesus ever been quiet with you? You wanted to talk right now and you'd like to know the answer and... He's with you, but no answer's coming. Um, you know that uh, when you've known someone well enough and long enough, and uh, when you trust the relationship, you can go on a long car ride and not really have to say a whole lot to each other. Sometimes. There's no insecurity, you see, to try to create something, make sure we keep feeling like we're in love. Because we already know we are, so we rest. In that sort of way, the Lord is with us. This is no silent treatment. This isn't any empty silence. He is listening for the God who's initiated with him to hear so he can speak out of having heard from God. Now, right there, there's an important thing that you and I need to know. Solitude leads to hospitality. Another way to say it, offering the hospitable presence of Christ to someone requires prior solitude. In order for me to know how to sustain a word in your weariness with you, that's hospitable presence. I have to have first listened in the quiet to God. It's a mistake when we try to... Uh, uh, mobilize small groups in church ministry 
or in counseling sessions, and we talk about how to do community without talking about prior solitude. That's why our groups struggle sometimes to function. Because community life, for me to come into community with you, if I am not listening in Christ, becoming one who's taught, then I just bring all my unmeditated stuff at you on a Thursday night in a living room at our house group. And if you yourself have not quieted to listen and hear and behold anything in several days, then you too just bring your unmeditated words to me. And there we are, both of us, just multiplying words rather than a word that can sustain. So the powerhouse of it is the gospel works in us this attentiveness. Here, old Matthew Henry, he says it this way, we must study to be quiet. The most of men are ambitious of the honor of great business and power and preferment. They covet it, they court it, they compass sea and land to obtain it, but the ambition of a Christian should be carried out towards quietness. He's expounding on 1 Thessalonians 4. Aspire to live a quiet life, to mind your own affairs. So, what does this mean? List talking as those who've listened. It means, like the wise in the Old Testament, we begin to speak fewer words. Is that scary? For some of you, that's scary. For some of us, it's coming to realize that words cannot save us. Your greatest hope for saving someone isn't your ability to speak. Your greatest hope is that what you speak has been taught to you by God. And it is timely spoken. You know what it's like when uh, you depend upon your words to get through a day. I mean, a lot of us here are gifted with words, and so we think, if I, if I could just get that text just right, if I could just get that email, just enough emojis, just the language, then, and we actually think to ourselves, then everything will be good. But you and I both know that sometimes the problem we have isn't because the thing is reasonable or not. It could be the most reasonable thing said to us. It doesn't matter. Is it just me who's sometimes irrational in my pain and sin? Aren't you a part of this company that I'm in? And someone could speak kind, plain truth to you, logically stated, artistically, aesthetically pleasing, timely, fitted just for your occasion. You will have none of it. How else do we explain the crucifixion of our Savior? Was it a matter of communication? Did he just need to rearrange his sentences better? No. There's no one more clear, more plain, more compelling, more right, more logically sound than our Lord Jesus. 
And they listened to him and they killed him. Our words are not our great hope, even though we work hard to communicate well with them. Behind them, there is a word given, taught in a community, a company of the taught, who seek to speak those words to the weary. This means, as James tells us, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Yikes. Now, I do need to say this. Somebody here is thinking, yes, I love this message because you're introverted like me and you don't like to talk. (laughs) And so I want to clarify something. There is a time to speak. I'm not talking about cowardice. It's not the quiet of cowardice. It's not the quiet of indifference. It's not the quiet of apathy. It's not an empty quiet, oh, they'll take care of it. It isn't a quiet of silent treatments. It isn't the quiet of introverted fear. It is a quiet that is fully engaged with beholding God so that in the presence of a person, I can know what to say that God will use to sustain them not because my knowing what to say is our, is our great hope, but because it, he is at work in it. So we're quick, quick, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. How do you do that? Why? The anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God, verse 20. It just doesn't. The fruit of the flesh doesn't bring about the fruit of the spirit. It just doesn't. And so we got to have a different way as we're listening to someone. So they come. Paul sits in front of us, Titus. We're beholding God. Number one, we're not going to say the first thing that comes to our mind. We're going to be quick to listen. That means we're not going to say the first thing that comes to our mind, even if it's good, even if it's right. We're not going to say it. We're going to wait, wait, right? And uh, because your first draft thought of what to say might turn out three minutes from now to have been completely misguided. So you wait and you wait and you're listening. It's as if you're with a person and you believe God is with you both, fine with his word and his providence with you, all creation declaring his glory. Everything is alive to his presence and you're listening. Therefore, put away filthiness, rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word in your quietness, not saying your first thoughts, not venting even your strongest emotions, anger, but waiting. What are you doing? You are, as a community, a listening community, sorting out, filtering. All right, what of this stuff that I'm thinking and feeling is filthy? Wicked, in contrast to receiving the implanted word. Sorting that out. So that then I can speak from there. And not only speak, but do, he says, doers of the word. We just have to slow down our speaking. 
we have to come to believe that silences that are filled with beholding are equally as important as our sentences in ministry and with each other. There are times uh, when, you're, when you're parenting a um, uh, teenage, when our kids uh, who are teenagers, whether we're in blended families or families that are intact, we're single parents or we're in all the beauty and mess of all those things, some of the hardest things to do is to wait. It's just hard. Because the bedroom might be right across the hall or within texting different distance. And you know how it goes. Things speed up. And so uh, I, I am sure that I need to have this talk with one of my kids because I know it's been a long time only to realize it, was, it wasn't even 24 hours ago that I brought this thing up. Now here I am bringing it up again because we're just right across the hall. Or we're just right across town. And then 24 hours later, it's still not fixed. More words. It's still not fixed. Anger. Ah, fix it. I'll throw everything I got. It's like we're in battle and I don't have a gun. I pick up a pot, a pan, anything I can find and I throw it. Fix it. And it's just... Folly on display, words being multiplied. It's a remarkable and unnervingly gracious thing to think to yourself, all right, I just talked about this two hours ago. I'm ready to talk again. I need to wait about six more weeks. Or months. Beholding, listening. Now, in order to do this, a couple things has to happen to be listening talkers. Um, one, we have to slow down our emails, okay? We have to slow down our emails to be a, a listening caregiver. Uh, don't take the bait. Uh, someone sends you an email. The heading says, Concerned. First line is, no offense, but next line is, can't believe you are this and that. Can I tell you, I read no further. I don't read any further, not anymore. Because that is not the way a lover of Christ communicates. And I don't have to pretend otherwise. I'm telling you straight. I stop with that email. I will either send that to a team or I will 24 hours later send a sentence. Dear friend, I received your email. I only read the first two sentences. We should talk. Zach. Or put my little Christian stuff in there. Grace upon grace, Zach. <laughs> Why? Because if I read all that, I'm just reading you at your worst. 
If you love me and I love you, you'll regret that you wrote it like that. Uh, and if, if you are my enemy, I don't need to spend my time with you at your worst. Does that sound mean to you? Send a note, invitation, talk. Uh, why wait 24 hours? Because if I read that, send an email right back, guess what happens? They read it, email right back. Now there it goes, multiplying words, folly. Nothing good comes of it. I'm reacting, spewing the first thing that I think. I'm no longer quick to listen. I am quick to speak, man. I am all caps and <laughs> anger, and none of that will bring about the kingdom, but who cares? Sometimes I wait 48 hours, sometimes 72 Sometimes a week. Out of silent treatment punishment? Nope. Nope. I have to get through every imaginary conversation before I can hope to respond to you wisely. You know what imaginary conversations are. Uh, here's an example from Psalm 55, 12 through 14. It was not an enemy who taunts me, David says. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. Notice that's third person language. He's talking to God about this person over here. Now suddenly he shifts as if he's talking directly face to face with the friend who hurt him. But it is you a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. He's talking as if his friend is right there. But he's not. You do this. So do I. It starts out as a prayer. Email came. Concern. You're this and that. Blah, blah, blah. God... Please have mercy on this folk, this person. Please help me to see whatever I need to see, whatever's true about they're trying to tell me about. And how could you write that to me? I was at your wedding. Here's what I would tell you. And now, now I, I'm, I'm away from prayer. I'm in imaginary conversation land as if the person is actually there. And what I'm doing is winning. And you know what is hard? Some of you, some of you, your temperament is such that after you have that conversation, you think you actually had it. I'm not kidding. You think you actually had it. I think I actually had it. And then, and then someone's trying to mediate a conversation between you and another person, and, and you're saying, they said this and that, and that person's dumbfounded. I, I don't ever remember saying that. And the mediator's trying to sort it out. It's because there's a lot of imaginary conversations going on where we move from prayer, casting our anxieties and pains upon the Lord, to having it out in our mind. I can't respond to you and your criticism until I've worked through all my imaginary conversations with you, you see. Until I've fought to get back to prayer for you. And I hope you will take the time to do the same. If I should write to you, not out of my best, but out of my worst, and that you too will give a little bit of time 
and not take the bait. And oh, that'll make me mad. Because I want you to respond just like that. I want you. There it is, my precious. I want. And in that, there's no beholding. There's no listening as those who are taught. There's no speaking as those who've been taught by God. There's, there's no word to sustain the weary. Particularly with texts, do not respond. If you start noveling on a text, I feel hip because young people use that word. If you start noveling on a text, which means you're just, I mean, you're just writing a book, uh, erase it. And if you receive a text that says, how are you, how's, how's, how wait six hours before you text back. Not out of silent treatment, not out of punishment. Number one, that person doesn't need you right now, actually. They don't need your response. They need God. And secondly, you need God before you can respond well. All of this is slowness to speak, quickness to listen, having the tongue of the one who's been taught with the Lord. And we listen as those who've heard, those who've been taught. Jesus said, um, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't that interesting? There's two kinds of hearing. To hear with the ears is to recognize. To hear with understanding is to discern. To hear with the ear requires only that one's eardrums work. To hear so as to understand requires that one's soul remain attentive and receptive to the goings-on in another person. To hear with the ear, one only needs to nod the head, shuffle the voice into mm-hmm and uh-huh. But to hear truly, however, one must ready herself to experience the life of another and from that experience to understand. To hear with the ear only is to categorize, explain, move on. To truly hear is to name the nuance, to understand the meanings, to separate out what is consistent from what is not, and to let what is mysterious or confounding remain for another day. To hear with the ear only is to quote the Bible. To hear truly is to bend one's life toward the meaning of the quote in real time with that person in Jesus. By the way, I know this wind is just remarkable. I was just thinking of Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching as the bombs fell in England. And I figured, well, if he could keep preaching while the bombs were falling, we can keep going with the wind. Strange what we think about. <laughs> let's let's uh, conclude this way. We've talked about this uh, quiet tongue as those who have been taught to sustain the weary, beholding God as he comes in, slowing down practical, silly, but real examples, imaginary conversations, working them through back to prayer before the Lord so that we can love our neighbor by means of our speech, now, practically, how do we begin to do that? It's this rhythm. He says, morning by morning, he awakens me. Now, we're prone to immediately think of a quiet time. I need to make sure I have 10 minutes every morning. What I want to remind you of is this is a 24-hour rhythm. Morning by morning. Morning by morning. 
It's a 24-hour rhythm. One day at a time. Jesus said each day has enough for its own, right? So one of the things that's becoming important to me besides a, a full day of rest once a week is uh, four portions of a day. A morning by morning, morning through the afternoon, through the evening, through the night watches, back to morning. Through the afternoon, through the evening, through the night watches, back to morning. And that this rhythm in our lives. Think about it in this way. Let's imagine uh, that uh, the morning starts around 6 a.m. and ends around noon. And the night watches ended around 5.59 a.m. and uh, started after midnight. And uh, the evening picks up, I don't know, 6 p.m. The afternoon starts around noon. So instead of 24 continuous spaces on your calendar to appointment for the day, it's actually broken up into four. So that those who would pray morning, noon, and evening, and those who would be up in the night watches with the Lord, if we had time, we would look at a robust teaching about this. I'm only hinting at it to you now. That when the morning begins, you wake up and you say, you behold, God, the night watches have ended. You're still with me and I'm still with you. Thank you. You're going to enter the morning. Joy comes in the morning. Weeping lasts for a night. You're entering the morning. Newness, promise, grace. You get to about 11.45. You're uh, getting in your car to go to a lunch appointment. And uh, you turn the radio off. You turn off the podcast, even if it's me you're listening to. You turn it off, and you do this. For me, it's three C's, so I can remember. Consolations, cares, and carnalities. That's just for me to help me remember. It's 11.45. Noon is about to start. The morning is coming to an end. I think for a moment... Lord, were there any consolations, any beautiful little gifts you gave to sustain my soul today, this morning? What was it? And now I'm thinking through to find little flowers from the morning that I can put in the vase and give thanks. And then I'm thinking about carnalities. Was there any temptation, Lord? Something, something coming at me this morning? Some temptation at me this morning? So I can look to Christ and begin the work of resisting that now while it's still morning. And then I'm thinking about my cares. Was there any cares from this morning? Yeah, something's bothering me. This is the way it works for me. Something's bothering me. I don't know what it is. I have to start thinking, what is bothering me? What is it? Ah, uh, 9 o'clock? No, 10, what was 11? Ah, uh, 8 o'clock, that email, concerned. I'm still there. It's 11.45. I'm still there. I'm about to enter the afternoon. The afternoon it requires wisdom. The afternoon is when you have happy hour. The afternoon in which night sins are introduced. 
The afternoon is the heat of the day. The afternoon is when you're ready to finish work at 2 o'clock and you've got three more hours to go. The afternoon is what requires perseverance. I'm about to enter the afternoon. I'm still at 8 a.m. concerned. I cast that care upon the Lord, for he cares for me. Now you and I meet at lunch. Yeah, it's you and me. We're meeting at lunch. You're the appointment I'm coming to see. You're Paul. I'm Titus. Go through the afternoon. Starting to go home. Afternoon is coming to an end. Evening hospitality is about to begin. That's when you make dinner. That's when you have people over. That's when you have small groups. That's when you have a lot of Bible studies. That's when you start showing hospitality. That's when kids come home. All that kind of stuff. And uh, right before I walk in the door, you see just a few minutes, I need to say the afternoon, Lord, any cares, any consolations, little flowers, put in a vase, any carnality, something trying to take me down. Why do you pray morning, evening, and night like that? Why? Because otherwise I am not coming from a posture of having been taught when I meet with you at lunch. I'm bringing my unmeditated agitation, agitation from another person's uh, broken attempt to love me. I have that in me as you are talking and we are meeting. Now, I bring that into our meeting. Who knows what that goes like? We go into our afternoon. By the time I get home, I bring all that unmeditated day having not behold, having not given thanks, having not fought any temptation, having not cast my cares, and I bring that home. Have you ever noticed that a lot of people you serve, they fight at dinner time? Particularly, if it's, it's when everyone comes back home. Well, have you ever noticed that in your own life? Dinner time, bedtime. All that stuff comes in there. Now it builds a day upon day of unmeditated, unprayed through imaginary conversation, day without gratitude, without gratitude, without all the little flowers that could have been in the vase to give thanks for God. And we bring that into each other, and there's just no way I would have a word that could sustain you in your weariness because I don't have it myself. But in reverse... Uh, when that starts to happen in your life, what happens is day upon day starts to slow down. Not your circumstances, but you internally start to slow down. Internally. Everything else is still a whirlwind, but internally. Because you've just paused. And if you're up in the night watches like a melancholy, anxious, fearful man like me, and you're up in the night watches and you're wondering if you're alone, it's actually the night watches are the time of solitude most often. Those are the most often times of quiet times in the Psalms, if you will. When up in the night watches, looking to the Lord, wondering if anyone's there, and then you remember, ah, it was in the night watches when they were at the, at the oars, and he came walking on the water, and he said, peace, don't be afraid. And they said, it's a ghost. And he said, no, it's me. And I think, ah, the Lord's up in the night watches with me as I'm roaring at the oars, 
and I feel like the whole rest of the world's asleep and doesn't care. So when the morning comes, I can enter it. And if you're my breakfast appointment, you'll be glad. Because there'll be an inner pace to whatever you're working out and we're sitting with that I couldn't just work up in the morning. I just couldn't make that happen. It becomes day upon day. So in my own personal experience, when I'm in a four portions of the day rhythm and a one-day Sabbath, when that's happening, then my inner life is slow. I am slow to speak. I'm able to give full attentiveness to, to you sitting in front of me and God with you, looking to Him with you. And you uh, feel as though you've been seen and heard and known. When I'm not in that rhythm, I don't even know what's going to happen. Because it gradually deteriorates and my inward pace starts to speed. Speed up, speed up. And it's difficult for me to offer any kind of rest because I don't have it. Those of us who don't have rest have a Savior. He says, come even right now. Come, he will give us rest. Those of us who've shattered our Sabbaths and have never heard of or, even, or anything with the four portions, he's been with us all along. He's with you now. He'll lead you into this company of the taught so that you speak morning by morning and you hear as one that's been taught. And then, if you're Titus, sitting with Paul, gold, beauty, ordinary powerhouse of grace, right there at Starbucks. And we can't quite explain it. It's just that it was sort of like our words became secondary, and he was present and primary. And we went away, not with our circumstances changed, but with a new glimpse of him that gets us through. We become those who, with a word, who have been sustained. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you very much for your kindness. Even as I speak about few words, I've used a lot of words to do it. We ask that in that irony, somehow, you would slow down our soul that we could hear you and pay attention and behold you in the providences of our life according to your word for the sake of others. That you would deliver us from evil for the times we've multiplied words to try to fix or control when really what we needed was the uncomfortable quiet of waiting upon you. We thank you for a fresh start and a new day because of your cross, because of the resurrection, because of who you are. We praise you. Amen. Copyright 2017 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.